welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. This sermon, this conversation this morning is a, a kind of a juxtaposition of our uh, conversation on encounter. What happens when people meet God and when God meets people? Um, so we talked about Moses a couple weeks ago and, and so on. Um, but it also crosses with the beginning of Lent. Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Um, and, and begins a 40-day journey. Uh, technically, Lent is almost 47 uh, days, but the days of Sabbath, the Sundays, are not counted. So 40 days between now and uh, Good Friday that bring us to an awareness of our need of a savior, yeah? Uh, and Ash Wednesday is that, that beginning of the journey of kind of back to the basics, pulling away. So we thought it would be interesting uh, in this series, and uh, this week and next, I'll be here next week as well, um, for those of you who'd like to make other plans. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, to, th- to think about what, what happens when the God you encounter isn't nice? What happens when the God you encounter comes to you and says, we need to talk, right? And then how do we respond to that in ways that are authentic to the relationship that he wants to have with us, desperately wants to have with us, a conversational, ongoing, daily relationship where he doesn't stand far off because we've made him stand far off but has permission to draw near uh, to say to us what is true about us and what is true about him. Uh, And so we're going to look at the story of one of the heroes of faith. And like so many other heroes, they're best examined from distance. The closer you get, the more human they appear to be, the more like you and I they really actually are. Uh, and so the one we're going to look at today is probably the greatest king that Israel ever had, named David. Uh, and uh, the places of, of brokenness and, and the kind of the streak of clay that runs through the gold of his heart uh, is an important um, um, element this morning. Uh, as we think about this guy who started off uh, with nothing to commend him, and by the way, I'm going to... Uh, kind of tell the story before we get to actually the text. The text is going to end rather than begin uh, this morning, so don't be anxious. This is in the Bible somewhere. Um, If you're interested in pursuing it, it's in 2 Samuel, um, which is in the Old Testament, which is also in the Bible, uh, for those of you who are wondering. Um, But David starts off uh, essentially of no account. He he is the youngest of of, uh, uh, a large family uh, and has nothing to commend him. Remember in a family uh, in the ancient Near East, the eldest son would get uh, twice the blessing and uh, two times what everybody else combined would get of the father. So so the youngest son was, was leftovers. It was crumbs from the from the table. But this didn't seem to bother David very much. He seemed to enjoy uh, his life as a, as, a, as a keeper of the flocks. He, he was despised to some degree by his older brothers. 
Uh, and, uh, but that didn't seem to bother him. He is out uh, in nature, which as it turns out his, is his favorite place to be. He is out on the hills, which will be his home for much of his adult life as he is running in, in conflict. So it's kind of a, a fascinating preparation. The, the places of uh, banish, banishment as a youngest son of, of, a, of, of, of older brothers uh, becomes for him a very familiar place, and that very familiar place becomes his playground when he is running from Saul, when he is conducting. So the things that were intended perhaps to, to, to kind of uh, signal his, his uh, diminishment actually became part of his strategy going forward. It's fascinating to see how God does that. And the reason I felt I needed to say that is some of you feel right now that you're on the backside of somebody else's desert wondering what in the world am I doing here? Uh, please notice that Jesus, God never wastes anything. So the very sense of being kind of left on the edges of somebody else's imagination, don't, don't be surprised if a few years from now that makes all kinds of sense to you. Might not now, but it will then. Just remember. Uh, and in that, in those encounters, of course, David is, is uh, in, in love with the God who has revealed himself to him in nature. And we get some of the most powerful poetry in the history of the world, not just Israel, not just Christianity, but in the history of the world coming out of that season. What is man that you are mindful of him? I consider the sun and the moon and the stars, the world that you have, all of these things, the works of your fingers. Who are we that you give us awareness? You know, those kinds of songs just erupting out of this beauty of his exploration and that sense of God's presence with him doesn't just extend to worship, it extends to his provision and care for the flock. He, he tells the story of later on in his journey of a, of, of, of a, of a lion attacking the, 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 the sheep and a bear attacking the sheep and by the strength of the spirit of God who is in him to write beautiful songs, he also is a defender of the flock that he is given charge of, an image that is going to become really important for him uh, as he moves into the role of Lion of Judah, the protector, the protector. Um, Saul is the king of Israel at this time. Um, you may recall that Israel um, was not intended to have a king. They were intended to be ruled by God, a theocracy, not a monarchy. Uh, so they're not built for human monarchy. Uh, they are built for uh, a heart-imprinted law that governs their relationships with one another. Unfortunately, um, because of the waywardness of the human hearts, they find themselves during the period of what is called the judges, uh, regularly subjugated by foreign nations as God's way of reminding them that he is in fact in charge, and if they would just align their hearts to him rather than worshiping these other gods as strategy, um, he, would, he would care for them and take care for them. The last and the greatest of these judges uh, combines the role of judge or ruler uh, with that of prophet. His name is Samuel, and he um, acquiesces to the people's demand for a king. We want to be just like the other nations, they say. And Samuel says, uh, 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 really? Really? That's what you want. Uh, 
And he, he, he pushes back, no. And God says, no, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting as their leader. It's me they're rejecting as their leader. So let's give them what they want so they get what they ask for. Be careful what you ask for. So Saul became the king because he was taller than everybody else. That was, by the way, the single criteria by which he was selected king. We, 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 we want somebody who's head and shoulders above everybody else. And, and, and remember, when Saul is, is uh, uh, kind of appointed and anointed king, Samuel goes along with this, Saul's heart is a good heart. He gets that he's nothing. He gets, he calls himself, he hides himself, and the interesting, the Hebrew says, among the baggage, among the, the stuff of war. Paul, Saul recognizes that what they're really looking for is a, is a leader who can, 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 can represent them well in the nations, right? Uh, but as soon as, you, soon as you add to that humility a touch of monarchy, things start to go sideways. If the heart isn't ready for the weight of that leadership, remember the addictive, uh, power corrupts. Well, certainly that is the case in Israel's monarchy. And it does not take long before Saul, who begins as this humble man who recognizes he's nothing and nobody, really thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. He starts to exercise and, and steps not only into the military role, which is what he was essentially conscripted for, but occasionally crosses over into the priestly role, which he's not suited for and is unqualified for. And so he is ultimately rejected by God, but he continues to serve because once you have your grip on power and have the capacity to eliminate rivals, you can maintain position long after the anointing for that position has left. Right? So in the middle of this, Saul is still king. David is now anointed in secret by Samuel as the king. And David, remember, he's a happy-go-lucky. He's described as, as, um, in the Hebrew as an attractive young man. So if you can imagine some guy with movie star good looks, if you will, model good looks, who is a man's man. He is toe-to-toe, hand-to-hand combat with lions and bears. Combine that with the sweetest songwriter in Israel's history, such that he can, he can in, with his tune, later on he is going to make maidens swoon with the beauty of it. So, so, so you, you, you're getting the picture of this guy, right? And so far, we're still, he, he's still a good guy. Now the monarchy begins to descend on him. And you start to see, oh, wait, Something's just a little off. For the most part, he's still hanging in there. He's sent on mission by, by, his, by his dad to, to see his brothers because unfortunately, when you have a king who's head and shoulders above everybody else, all the enemy needs is somebody who's taller than your king. And his name was Samson. Uh, Samson. Remember, Samson is the strong man. And, and Saul who is bigger than all of Israel, is unable to go up against Samson, who is big, or, no, wait a minute, Goliath. Goliath. <laughs> I knew I had the wrong guy. Thanks, that was just a check to make sure y'all were paying attention. Anyway, so, so Goliath is this guy, he's this monster, he's bigger than everybody else, and, 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 and Saul is quivering in his tent, this mighty man, 
The anointing has left him. He's no longer king. David, on the other hand, is bringing sandwiches to his brothers. And he hears this taunt, Goliath, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the hillside every day, comes out asking for Israel's champion to come. Let's reduce bloodshed. Send me your champion. We'll do arm to arm, hand to hand, sword to sword combat. And whoever wins will be the winner. And we can just dispense with all of this silly warfare. It sounds like a wonderful idea. The only one who recognizes that the taunt is not against Israel, but against God, is David. And he understands, oh, wait a minute. This, this, this isn't about Israel. This isn't about Saul. This is about the name of the Lord. And, and there rises up within him a righteous indignation that even though he is a young man, thinks, I can do this. I can do this. But at the same time, and here's where the clay begins to show up, he has heard a rumor. So he verifies. In fact, in the text, he asks about this a couple of times. What will happen to the guy who goes up against Goliath and wins? What will happen? Let me... Let me Oh, he gets the king's daughter's hand in marriage. And you can start to see the anointing leads to a strategy. You're going to be the new king. How can I make this happen? Do you see? And he begins to act. David will prove himself to be as every bit as scheming and strategic in his thinking as any other person you'll ever want to meet. He is Machiavelli in prototype. So you have this, this image of this sweet, innocent, good-looking man's man, toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with lions and bears, this sweet singer of Israel's praise songs, who is at the same time this crafty, strategic thinker whose heart is a man after God's own heart. Are we starting to complicate the image of David enough that he's no longer the poster child? <laughs> right? And so David goes up against Goliath, and you know the story. Uh, David is not stupid. And he realizes that he doesn't have to beat Goliath at Goliath's game. If he just changes the strategy, it's now his game. I don't have to have, I don't have to be stronger than Goliath. I don't have to be taller than Goliath. I just have to be faster than Goliath. And Goliath is a monster. He's got this sword. He's got this armor. The guy weighs 10 tons. If he gets going in a certain direction, momentum alone will take him out. Right? So David's strategy is to utilize the wisdom that he has gained in the desert. He is an expert with a slingshot. And he just susses out the target. Remember, he can kill birds with his slingshot. An 11 foot tall giant is not an issue. All I have to do is find the sweet spot where he's not protected by armor. And, and so we're all, we're, all, we're all impressed that David, you know, five stones, bang, whoa, and poor Goliath, he doesn't see what's coming, literally. And, 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 and he's still, you know, where's your sword? I don't, I don't need a sword. I come to you in the name of the Lord. You're going down. If I need a sword, I'll use yours. <laughs> and he takes him out. 
And of course, this, this, this puts David now exactly in the, the, you feel the wave beginning to build, right? And, and, and so he moves into, he, he in fact does get Michael, the, the, the daughter of, of, of Saul. He moves into the royal family. He is now a hero in Israel. He goes back and forth and the narrative wonderfully weaves the story of the tension that exists between the sweet singer of Israel who comes into Saul's court to care for him when he feels tormented and angry, but is able to dodge the spear of Saul when he throws it. I mean, it's a fascinating story. But you can see David's got his eye on the prize. He knows where this is going to end. He knows where it's going to end, and sooner or later, it's where it ends. He becomes the king when Saul and his son, Jonathan, David's best friend, are killed in battle. And, of course, the rumors are swirling. At the end of the day, however, David is triumphant and becomes the king. And because of the kind of person he is, who has, by this time, with his tensions and battles with Saul, I'm moving out a whole part of the narrative, but he has gotten men and, and, and women around him. He has a mercenary army that is, is considered, uh, uh, if you will, the, the strongest and the elite branch. If you can take the, the Marines, if you will, or the Green Berets or the Rangers or the Seals or whatever you want, those are the guys that he has surrounded himself with. with. He has done battle in this wilderness area that he grew up with. He's just this, a brilliant tactician. I'm not wanting to take anything away from David as person. He's, a, he's smart. He's wily. He's a man's man. Those guys would die for him. So when David becomes the king, this same strategy, still a heart set on God, still a heart um, um, uh, oriented to worship, very strategic in who he marries, who he does battle with, how he negotiates things, he's brilliant at this. He's, he is brilliant at this. You think of the smartest politician that we have in the country and you multiply him by 10 and you're getting close to David. Plus he has the anointing of God. This is the second king of Israel. Remember, God said no kings to begin with, right? Okay, you get what you want. Let's see what the greatest king in the history of Israel looks like. And we get David. Not the, not the longest serve, not the, not the one with the greatest breadth, that's Solomon, David's son. We'll get to him in a minute. So David now is, is riding the wave of popularity. There's a few uh, subtle rebellions, but he puts those down. And as he goes along, he becomes more and more believing that he is now all that and a bag of chips. He has begun to forget who he is and how he got where he is. Do you, do you see how that happens? He, the, the power of the monarchy layered on a foundation of a heart set after God, but with a streak of clay running through the center of it begins to crack and fragment. David finally establishes his uh, headquarters at Jerusalem. Takes it over and makes it his own palace, and he wants now, finally having consolidated the kingdom, finally bringing everybody, and he wants now to build a temple to God, which sounds wonderful. 
until you realize that for David, yes, it is an act of worship, but it's also politically motivated. Because when you have a temple built for God, guess who controls access to the temple? The king in whose city the temple is built. And so this is the first time we get a, a, a picture of the prophet Nathan, whose story we'll kind of look at, at juxtaposition. The prophets were an official role. Remember, because we're not intended. Is anybody bored? Are you, you doing okay? This is fascinating to me, and I kind of geek out on this stuff. So, so bear with me on this. It's like some of you are starting to look at me like it's a discovery thing. But um, that's okay. So, so we're, 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 we're in the season. Uh, and, and, and David says to, to Nathan, the, the kind of the official prophet, remember, because we're not intended to have a monarchy, God acquiesces and says, but it won't be a monarchy with absolute power like the others around there. In fact, you're going to be controlled on one side by priests and on the other side by by prophets, this is going to be a three. This is going to be a team effort and leadership. Yeah, you can be them, but don't forget these other guys. And the role of the prophet is to be the guy just on the kind of the outside of edge of the inside. That makes sense. And to be able to critique and 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 criticize the monarch. It's a dangerous position to be in. And Nathan knows this. So, but at the same time, David is aware in the early stages that he. He, he is dependent on Nathan because Samuel, prophet, anointed him. His legitimacy as a king depends on the anointing. Nathan takes over from Samuel. David's legitimacy as a king depends on Nathan's support. So early on, I want to build a temple. I want to build a temple. And then Nathan, in probably the most powerful statement of sarcasm. How many of you have a sarcastic God? Every once in a while, he, he, he speaks God's word to David. Will, will you build me a house? Is what God says to David. I, you're the one who sang about the works of my fingers. So you're going to build me a house? I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, and then David just backs up. Well, I was just trying to do the right thing. Okay. First time we see Nathan. We go on a number of years, battles back and forth, border skirmishes. For the most part, David is successful because he depends on his armies. And Joab, his primary commander, is a bloodthirsty and brutal leader. And David lets him do all the dirty work. He's the enforcer. Meanwhile, David sings sweet songs. Right? Until one day, the battle is out, counseled by Joab to stay back. It's a minor one. Don't, don't, don't stress yourself. We'll take care of this. David is in, in, in town, and in the cool of the evening, finds himself on the rooftop of the palace, overlooking his city, his city, his city, and sees there a beautiful woman bathing on the top of the roof, assuming, expecting, reasonably so, privacy. And then... Because he can, he does. He acquires her, sleeps with her, sends her back as if nothing had happened, only to discover that she's pregnant. And David, rather than manning up, begins to spin. 
How many of you have noticed it's not always the thing that's initially done, it's the cover-up of the thing that's done that is the most egregious to us? So here he goes. He asked Joab to send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, into town and gives him permission to go and sleep at his home, which he assumes will result, like all good men on battle, when they come home, after having been denied the comforts of a marriage bed, will find themselves in bed. And he thinks strategically that he can pass off this illegitimate son that Bathsheba is carrying on Uriah's desire for his wife after having been in battle. But he doesn't count on the kind of loyalty he has built in his soldiers. Uriah can no more sleep with his wife than he can do harm to the king. He has sworn an oath. Uriah, by the way, isn't even an Israelite. He's a foreign mercenary, a Hittite, and he is more righteous in this than even David is. Thwarted in his first attempt, David writes a letter to Joab, his commander on the field, seals it with the royal seal and gives it to Uriah to carry to Joab, saying to Joab, put this man in the heat of the battle, essentially guaranteeing his death. Murder by proxy. Joab knows what's what because he's been with David a long time. I want you to think through Uriah, a man so loyal to David that he would not even think about opening the royal directive, carries his own death warrant to Joab, who executes it. News comes back from the battle that Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, is dead. After an appropriate time of mourning, David takes Bathsheba's wife, thinks everything's going to be fine. Nathan makes appearance number two. This is what he says. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich. The other, poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, because he could, he took the ewe lamb 
that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. There is enough of a heart after God still in David, the clay has not taken over fully, that he is incensed at this injustice. His response is classic David. He burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. But that sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because you have made the enemies of the Lord show contempt for the Lord, the sunborn will die. This is what happens when you encounter God. When he comes into the middle of the mess that you and I have created for ourselves. Notice Nathan here is very circumspect. He doesn't know how David's going to respond. He doesn't know if there's enough of the David that he remembers to trust him to say directly what needs to be said. So he comes in sideways with a story and traps David in the box canyon of his own guilt. Till David finally, with what remains of a heart still after God's own heart, sees himself in the mirror and says, I've sinned. Out of that encounter with God, we get the sweetest, most painful psalm that we're going to conclude with this morning. I want you to notice as we read through it that even David's repentance is partial. That sometimes, friends, is the best we can do. We confess what we know to confess. We don't know how to confess everything that we ought to confess. You can see the longing in his heart for restored relationship and the deep tragedy is that even though David prayed with all his heart, even though he was forgiven, this is the last time Nathan representing the voice of the Lord ever speaks to David. 
It is his son by Bathsheba, Solomon, the, not the son who dies, but the next one who will take over and rule in his place and who will be the last great king, three kings, one, two, three strikes, you're out. It's going to take another couple hundred years for the monarchy finally to die. But what God told them in the beginning will be true in the end. Could have been different if when the weight of monarchy is placed on the cracked foundation of a, of a heart that's right, heart after God's own heart. And please notice, what that means is not perfect. What it means is when you're caught, you take what's coming to you. Encounter with God does not invite hiding. What does that have to do with us? Well, I'll tell you what it has to do with me. Um, it's been a cautionary tale for me. Just even in looking over this text this morning, I find my own heart um, needing to pray this with any of you who may feel the same need. We're going to read through it once. And then I'm going to ask you to just sit for a minute and let the Holy Spirit of the living God, that representative of Nathan, come in. And gently, not for purpose of condemnation, but for purpose of conviction. Conviction always has hope built into it. I just don't want anybody to leave this morning carrying in the same bag load of stuff you came in, carrying it back out. Maybe Nathan in the form of the Spirit will come to you and say, maybe God in the form of the Holy Spirit will come to you and say, we need to talk. Can we leave this here now? You've come to the table. Can we leave it here? Here's what David's prayer is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me, and you desire truth, integrity in the inner parts, so teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, then, make Zion, your city, prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, burnt offerings. Bulls will be offered on your altar. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.